Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. If you compare our mortality in Australia, it's 1.5%. So one and a half in every hundred people that catch it are dying. The United States is more than three times that. The United Kingdom is 10 times that. Wow. It's 15% in France. Today's episode is another of our COVID-19 specials on how senior frontline medical experts are helping build and execute the campaign to substantially reduce this virus's hold on our community. Professor David Isaacs, a senior specialist in paediatric infectious diseases at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, one of New South Wales's biggest and busiest kids' hospitals, has had a career-long focus on respiratory virus infections in children and immunisation programs and vaccines. As Australia and many other countries begin to gingerly open up from our lockdown, Professor Isaacs is blunt about the sobering risks in doing that. But on the vexed issue of children spreading the disease, on whether schools should be open, and on how do we stop asymptomatic spread in the community as we venture outside more, his evidence-based advice is considered and ultimately optimistic. Professor David Isaacs, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Oh, it's a great pleasure to speak to you and thank you for giving us your time. Now, just where we are now with COVID-19, what are the biggest risks we face as most states in Australia and many other hard-hit Western countries start to loosen up the strict lockdown rules? Yes, I mean, I think what we know we face is a recurrence of cases of COVID-19, what they call the second wave, if you like, and a number of countries have described that, it's almost inevitable unless you've completely eradicated the disease, and we haven't done that, we know, then we get occasional cases. But as we get closer together, then we're likely to start spreading it again. Yeah. So you mean as we get closer together physically again? I mean physically closer together. So we can still social distance and we are currently in pretty good control of the disease in Australia. I think Australia has done remarkably well and we should be incredibly grateful to the chief medical officer and his advisors because Brendan Murphy, his assistant deputy, Paul Kelly, and their team of advisors have given us very good advice. And as a result of that, and of the government heeding that advice, some of which they had to heed because that was the law. So when Brent Murphy said, this is a pandemic, the government had to act. That was the law. And they went along with that. But the social distancing, checking people coming off flights and then stopping flights, the quarantining of people who arrived from overseas for two weeks, all of those measures have made an enormous difference. And so countries that are in real trouble did not do those things. The US, the UK, Italy, Spain, they did not do that. And they have paid the price in terms of their health services being overwhelmed. Ours has not been overwhelmed. And the danger, of course, is that if we get blasé about it, we might. 
get overwhelmed. But I think we're in a good position that we won't, to be honest. Just a couple of points about what you've just said. Firstly, who are these fabulous team of advisors that Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy has? They appear to be faceless at the moment. Yes. I mean, I was talking to a friend about this and discussing. I know a couple of them, their names, and they are the most brilliant, hardworking infectious disease people in this country, I would say. So if you wanted an opinion of the best infectious disease person in this country, I would say, oh, go to him. And if you want the best modeler, I say, oh, go to her. And Brendan Murphy's done just that. I'm not going to give you their names because he's not giving their names. And that is actually to protect them. Protect them how? We've just got crazy saying, oh, it's coming in the airwaves and so on. It's been invented by China and so on. Nonsense stuff. But those people target people on social media Mm. and can make their lives a misery. And my friend's suggestion, and I buy that, is that these people are deliberately being protected for their own sake. What's the main thing you think we did that really helped us keep it under control? Was it locking down our borders or trying to, even though we know there were some problems with ships? Look, I would not say one thing because I think it's a combination of things. And that's what is so impressive about how well we've done. I mean, we're an island and we're isolated, but there are other islands that have done much worse, the United Kingdom, for example. So we recognize that people coming from China were a problem. We didn't realize quite as quickly that people coming from the US were a problem because it was already spreading from China to the US and in Italy, as you know, from Wuhan to Lombardy region in Italy. And so we would have people coming from Europe, people coming from America who were bringing COVID. And then we realized that that was the case as well. And then we locked down completely. When we did see a case, we traced them quite quickly. We tested well. So lots of testing was important. Countries that don't test won't find COVID and they won't have anyone die from COVID (laughs) because they don't test them. You mean, of course, they'll have people die from it, but they won't know that it's COVID. Well, what I mean is they will have no record of having some. So, you know, we don't believe some of the figures that are coming out from different countries, of course. And, you know, even countries that do test well, in the long run, one of the ways that we look at the effects of a pandemic influenza, for example, because we know we can't test everyone for influenza, we look at excess deaths. And when you start to look at excess deaths more than you had expected, that will give us an idea of what's down to COVID and what isn't. And so that can be applied in all countries, if you see what I mean, but that have got decent records. But of course, it's spreading in countries that pretend it isn't. But we haven't done that. We've tested very well. And when you test well, then you contact trace well as well. So once you've identified someone, then you get public health units saying, oh, who are their contacts? What do we do about them? We test them, we isolate them or quarantine them is the correct term, really. Quarantine them. We know that the incubation period, the amount of time between you being infectious and the next person catching it is a maximum of two weeks. It's about two to 12 days. So if you make it two weeks, that means if they haven't got symptoms by then, then they haven't caught it. Right. So that's the way public health works, if you like, and that we've done the public health things really well. But you need a good, vibrant public health system to do that. If you haven't got that and the US hasn't, for example, then you're in real trouble. There's 
there is a bit of a sigh of relief that you can feel within the government, the health authorities, in what they're telling us and in the community that maybe we are doing okay in Australia in terms of avoiding that first avalanche of infections and deaths. Can we become too complacent given your saying a second wave is indeed a possibility? Yeah. So look, I mean, the evidence that we've done well, so people talk about this idea of flattening the curve. So the idea is if you get lots of cases at once, you've got a very steep curve. And if you flatten the curve, you don't get as many cases at once. So you don't overwhelm the health system and you get a lower mortality. Yeah. Now, the mortality that we measure depends on how many people you're testing. If you don't test lots of people or if you test only the sickest ones, your mortality will look higher. Okay. But if you compare our mortality in Australia, our mortality currently is 1.5%. So one and a half in every 100 people that catch it are dying. The United States is more than three times that. The United Kingdom is 10 times that. It's 15%. It's 15% in France. They're higher, England and France are higher than Italy and Spain in terms of their mortality. But there, Italy and Spain are in the 10% and above. So 1.5%, that is evidence that we've flattened the curve, that our intensive care units are not overwhelmed, our health system's not overwhelmed. So they're patting themselves on the backs advisedly. Now, Boris Johnson's patting himself on the back inexplicably. Donald Trump's patting himself on the back equally inexplicably. They're not listened to their health advisors properly. They've been blasé about it, or they've been more concerned about the economy than people's lives. So we have done well. The downside of that is the economy, but people are saying that the economy is going to be hit harder in the UK than it is here. So you can't pretend to yourself that it's one or the other. It's either the economy or lives, because if you have a massive outbreak, it's going to hit the economy. So I think we can pat ourselves on the back and recognize that as a nation, we've done extremely well. Is the danger of complacency? There certainly is. And the government is well aware of that. And, you know, in countries where they've opened out, they're going into summer in Europe and people are flocking to their beaches. And luckily, we won't be doing that quite so much in the winter. But if we forget to social distance, if we get it wrong and go too fast, then the disease will we'll get little outbreaks. I think that's what's likely to happen, is that we'll get little outbreaks and then we'll try and control them. It'll be terrible if it gets into old people's homes, as you know. Yeah. I mean, aged care facilities, of course, the one in Sydney has been a disaster. And in other institutions, I'm scared about prisons. I'm scared about people in detention. Asylum seekers being held in detention, I think, is all wrong. You know, they've committed no crime and should be sent out into the community, I believe, into community detention. Professor Isaacs, you're attached to the Children's Hospital at Westmead in Sydney. What are you actually seeing there? Have you treated children with COVID? What is the picture there, both a hospital sense and from the children point of view? And what's happening with your ICU unit there? So in our hospital, at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, you could have come here today because it's the safest place to be in Sydney. Wow. We have tested... Over 1,200 children, okay, and the only one that's tested positive, we knew the parents had COVID, and we were pretty certain the child did, but the child was very well, in fact, had a very mild cold, and that child tested positive, 
didn't have to come into hospital, went home. We've had a couple of children in the hospital for a day who we were detected elsewhere as having COVID. But other than that, we've tested over 1,200 children for one positive. If one of our staff members gets a cold or a fever or a sore throat, a cough, then we test that staff member and they're sent home until the result's back. We've tested 900 so far, none positive. So not one of us has got it. Which again is so different to the awful picture in particularly Italy and Spain where health workers were getting it. Well, absolutely. So Italy were overwhelmed by the time they realised what was going on and then staff members were passing it to other staff members and they didn't have the resources to send people home and quarantine people because otherwise they had no staff to look after the patients. Plus their intensive care units got completely crowded. They were setting up intensive care units in tents, literally under canvas, in tents that they had to erect like field hospitals Mm. in a war in a developing country, though, where that sometimes has to be done. So, I mean, Italy got into a terrible mess, I'm afraid. We are not in that way in adult hospitals. My niece works in London. She works in a paediatric intensive care unit at St. Mary's, and they're full of adult patients. Mm. So the paediatric intensive care units have had to take adult patients. We have not had to do that. Our paediatric intensive care unit has not had a single patient with proven COVID. Were you prepared? Was the hospital going to, yes, give over the children's ICU to adults? Absolutely. So our paediatric intensivists are trained in adult intensive care as well. And they have a plan, and still do, that if Westmead Hospital next door, adult intensive care unit, gets overwhelmed, that we will take their patients. That's not happening. The other thing that we have to do is if we have a child brought in with a respiratory illness, pneumonia, say, we test them for COVID, and it takes 24 hours or so to get that result back. It's quite a time-intensive test. And that child is treated as if they have COVID in a special COVID area until the test result is back. Now, every child we've tested has turned out to be negative. But for some families coming from Noumea, for example, we have children transferred by the French government from Noumea to New Caledonia to our hospital for cardiac surgery or so on. And they go into our intensive care unit and they have to be quarantined for two weeks, Mm. even if they've had negative tests, in case they're incubating it and are bringing it over from Numea. So they're treated as foreign visitors, if you like. And so the child and the mother or father have to be quarantined, which Mm. is complicated and involves a lot of planning and a lot of actual activity when they do come. Just to be clear, on the other side, you're talking about all the things that we as humans and infectious diseases specialists and doctors are doing. Just to be clear, this coronavirus hasn't gone away, has it? We haven't beaten it. Can you explain what is happening with the actual virus itself when things like daily infections are staying right down? Yeah, (laughs) that's a great question. So one of the things that has been intriguing us all is viruses like this particular virus, and its name is not COVID-19, that's the disease. That's the disease, yeah. The name of the virus that we call it SARS-CoV-2. Okay. And the SARS is because its closest cousin is the SARS coronavirus. 
that started an outbreak, you remember, back in 2003 in Asia. Yes. And so SARS is severe acute respiratory syndrome. That's where SARS came from, okay? And then suddenly, in 2003, along came this devastating, what could easily have been a pandemic, with SARS. And every person that got SARS, on average, passed it on to two or three other people, just the same, very, very similar to COVID-19, mm-hmm. okay? And that SARS virus came almost certainly from bats. It had an intermediate host. So many, many of the viruses that cause us huge problems come from animals and birds. Yeah. You know, influenza, HIV, lots of the measles originally came from rinderpest and so on. So there are lots of our links with animals and birds set us up for viruses jumping across species to us. So SARS was coped with. It stayed mainly in Asia. It was causing horrible, horrible problems. I mean, those of us who didn't work there were absolutely aghast at what it was doing to their population in SARS. There were doctors and nurses dying. Doctors stayed in the hospital for months, afraid to take it back to their children and families. It was petrifying for people in Singapore, in China, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, South Korea. It spread to, interesting, to Canada. We did not have a single case in Australia. No. So we were waiting for, for SARS to come here, and it never came. And it died out. And SARS has not come back again at all. This particular coronavirus or COVID-19 hasn't gone away. We haven't beaten it. But what's the virus doing? Is it just sitting because everybody's not getting close? It's just sitting, waiting to pounce again? So some people who are asymptomatic can have the virus. You can be asymptomatically infected with the virus Okay. And asymptomatic, just for our listeners, means? Asymptomatic. By what I mean is you've got the virus in your nose somewhere, but it's not causing you any symptoms. You're well, but you've got the virus. Now, we know that happens in adults and it happens in children. Do children who are carrying the virus infect other people? No. Almost certainly not, from what evidence we've got. Almost certainly not. So there really is very little or no spread from children to adults of COVID-19. Yes. The basis for saying that is one piece of evidence. There's a very nice study done in schools in New South Wales recently by the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, Christine McCartney, Nick Wood and their team. And they looked at some cases of COVID-19, they found nine children and nine teachers with COVID who'd been discovered to have COVID. And Nick and Christine and their team then went and tried to trace all their contacts in primary schools and secondary schools. And all the contacts they traced, several hundred adults and children, so teachers and other children, they found one child who'd caught it in a high school and one in a primary school. And the one child in the high school probably caught it from a teacher. The one child in the primary school may have caught it from another child. So lots and lots of exposures in the classroom and very little transmission. And so that suggests children don't spread it very much. Right. So it's not completely conclusive. It's not conclusive. They can spread it. Don't get me wrong. And the older the child, the more likely they are because they become more like an adult. But it spreads a lot in families, this 
disease. That's always been described. And in the family clusters, nine out of 10 times, it's the adult who introduced it into the family. Right. One out of 10, it's the child. So children can spread it, but they don't very often. If I take you back to this idea of asymptomatic spread, yes. you say, where is the virus? And the answer, the virus seems to hang around in people's noses for a couple of weeks sometimes without causing them any symptoms. And those people in studies in Germany have suggested that they probably can spread it. You might say, and I would say, well, how do they spread it? They're not coughing. And so normally we get droplets. People cough out droplets and they go a meter or so and then they fall to the ground. This is why we have one and a half to two meter distancing. So if you keep those physical distances, you're not usually going to be infected by someone who's droplet spreading. Now, they might get it on their hands and wipe their hands on a surface, and then it can persist on the surface for some time. And that's presumably how someone who's asymptomatic might spread it to someone else. They might rub their nose, get it or their mouth, put their hands on a surface, and it can persist on the surface for a while. Someone else comes along, touches that surface, rubs their own nose, mouth, or eyes, and that's how the other person gets infected. And that's why we're trying to stop people rubbing their eyes and noses and things all the time. We're trying to say, don't do that quite so much. But what is your expertise then on this asymptomatic spread in the community? Is there an increased risk of that as we open up more and stop sort of quarantining ourselves? Well, I mean, I think that is the worry. So you say, where are people going to get infected? And they're going to get infected by people who are a bit naughty. Or when I say naughty, it's difficult. You know, when you're early in a cold, you're not quite sure. Is this my usual, every time I go out in the cold air, I get a runny nose? Or is it the beginning of a cold sort of thing? Is that scratchiness in my throat because I smoked too much or, or snored too much last night? Or is it a real infection? So people are a bit uncertain about those sort of things. One of the things I would say is if you're uncertain, just see. But if you have any doubts, don't go into work. Just isolate yourself. Get yourself tested. Lots of places to get tested. All the major hospitals now will test you or public health units will tell you where you can get tested locally and see if you've got COVID and you'll know the result in a few hours. So the thinking behind doing a lot more tests now as we open up more is what exactly? Well, to identify cases, contact trace, the classical sort of thing. So yeah. if you had tuberculosis, this is how we would do it. We would say, oh, there's a case of person with tuberculosis. Let's test all their contacts around them. Well, here we say we'll isolate their or quarantine their contacts around them and make sure it doesn't spread too far. So the idea is identify cases. Now, the next thing about that is, do you try and identify asymptomatic mm. cases? And that's the whole country. How can you do that? And the governments are talking about doing it, and I'm thinking this is not a great idea. We don't want to be doing it to children, although people have been talking about doing it to children, because, first of all, it's very traumatic. I don't know if you've had a COVID swab. I haven't yet. Somebody says it's almost like a brain biopsy. They push the blessed thing so far down. You know, very traumatic. And little children don't tolerate that very well, quite rightly, actually. And so I haven't had to have one, but I've had to take them on little children. And it's a horrible thing to have to do to a child. And to do that to someone who's asymptomatic, who's not likely to spread it anyway, seems to me a bit dark. Yeah. So I don't think we should be doing asymptomatic testing on children. I'm not convinced that asymptomatic testing on adults is going to get us very far unless you test the whole country and we can't do that. And so my feeling is that we should be testing symptomatic people and then tracing contacts around them. 
and trying to cope with the asymptomatic spreaders by saying, well, maintain the social distancing. Yeah. So, I mean, at one stage, I thought we might be close to totally eradicating it from Australia. And that is a possibility that we would have no cases in Australia, no transmission. Okay. If you do that, though, it's not going to be eradicated from the world. So we would still have to quarantine everyone coming into Australia for two weeks. Yeah. So I don't think we're ever going to totally eradicate it from Australia without a vaccine or unless this virus dies out. People worry about it mutating. It's not mutating. It's the same virus here all over the world. There's some nonsense about people saying it's changing its spots and it's milder in Australia because it's a different virus from America. It's not true. It's the same virus. Two ways that a virus like this is going to die out is one, if such a large proportion of the population is infected and then immune, that it can't pass anymore. And the calculation is that it's got to be 60% of your population. Now, if you start to think about 60% of Australia getting infected, so let's call that 15 million, roughly, and say a 1% death rate. Oh, my goodness. 1% of 15 million. Mm. Okay, so that's not an option. And that's the option that the UK thought that they could go down at first. And it was a disaster, really. And so you can't just wait for 60% of the population. Could that possibly happen over time? Possibly. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you're an expert in immunity, immunization programs, vaccines. Talk a little bit about whether we can get any sort of immunity without the vaccine, which I guess you've just answered. But how likely is it that we get a vaccine that works? And what are the difficulties, I guess? I'm, as you say, a great believer in vaccines. I've written a book about um, the history of vaccines development, and I think they've been the most major advance that science has made, perhaps apart from ones to do with antibiotics and hygiene-related things. But vaccines have made the most, they've saved millions and millions of lives, and they still do every year. So the potential for a vaccine would be phenomenal. That is what we want. It's got to be safe. And we have not really had the ability to test a coronavirus vaccine ever. My reservations about this vaccine are that there seems to be an immunological aspect of what's happening with COVID-19. What I mean by that is it's not just that the virus is really nasty virus and it's killing you and the older you get, the more likely you are to die. There's an aspect of that. But it's not doing that to children. And yet it is to some young adults, 20, 30, 40-year-olds, sometimes get really, really sick. And that tends to suggest that it's your host immune response kicking in and that it's not very well controlled. And people, as they get older, their host immune response isn't as good, but it's also not as well controlled. And so there seems to be not just the virus doing damage, but your own immune response to it damage. A lot of the cases, the child person seems to be getting better and then has a sort of second kick and gets worse again and gets really nasty disease. And that suggests an immune process. Now, if immunity is a major factor in causing the disease, the difficulty with giving a vaccine is that you might stimulate an immune response that could be harmful. Wow. We've done that in the past, a long time ago, with some of the earliest vaccines for other diseases, and they caused disease when 
the immunized people saw the natural virus later on. The disaster I'm talking about was measles. The very first measles vaccines people tried to use were killed. And they injected killed vaccines into children. And then when the children saw the wild measles, they got a modified disease that was very nasty. We're talking several decades ago, right? We are talking long before you were born. (laughs) I mean it. We're talking even around the time I was born, back in the 1950s, we're talking. Okay. And those were early disastrous experiments. And people realized what was happening and developed a live vaccine that has saved millions of lives. Measles vaccine has saved millions of lives all around the world. And we will eventually probably eradicate measles. Okay. Because there's only one strain of measles and because we've got a really, really good vaccine. If we can get it all around the world, we will eradicate measles. When you give a vaccine, you begin with small trials. And then you have to do really a very big trial to make sure you're not going to do something like this. And so that means giving a vaccine to thousands of people and having a control group that don't get the vaccine and just making sure you're not actually causing more harm than good with your vaccine. Because it's really important you don't give it to millions of people Mm. if it's a harmful vaccine. Mm. Do you see what I mean? So weighing up risks and benefits, and we're very aware of the fact that vaccines are incredibly powerful, but they also can occasionally be very dangerous. And we have to be sure about that. Safety of vaccines is paramount. We talk about their efficacy, do they work, but also about their safety. Are we testing for immunity yet? way we try and measure immunity is to look for antibodies. And if we find those antibodies, we know you've made an immune response to it, but antibodies aren't our only defense to virus infections. And for a few virus infections, you can have antibodies but still get infected again, usually milder the next time. So that's all I can say at the moment is that we need to see whether antibodies that we can measure correlate with being protected. There's been a lot of talk here about, oh, Sweden's not in lockdown, but they have much higher numbers of deaths. I mean, so I guess that's still an unfolding experiment, but could they achieve a herd immunity? Oh, look, I think Sweden probably is not heading towards 60% of the population, but they have taken an option that's different to other countries in Scandinavia. I know. Of having more social mixing and so on. Remember that social distancing, that term is used and I don't like it because I think we're trying to say physical distancing, not social distancing, but it is causing social isolation. And we know that has effect on suicide rates. We know that has a disastrous effect on domestic violence. Mental health is hugely affected by this. And so Some countries like Sweden have said we're more concerned about the mental health problems caused by social, physical distancing and isolation. We're prepared to wear a virus going through our community to a certain extent. And, you know, when I say we've done brilliantly in Australia, we've done brilliantly in terms of flattening the curve, keeping the number of deaths down, limiting spread. But We're having to try and relax it now because we're concerned about increases in mental health problems and so on. And Sweden has opted for a slightly different way. I don't know that there's a right way, if you see what I mean. We're all trying to see what's best for our population. And I mean, of course, there's also, you know, what the country's used to in terms of civil liberties. 
in some countries, you haven't got much civil liberty to begin with. And people have said that about China. We've got civil liberties and we don't like them to be infringed for too long. We will accept it for a bit, but after a while, everyone starts to say, mm, it's not the Australia I know and love. Yeah. Just two final issues, which you no doubt have thought about a lot and advised hospitals and people on. The still vexed question, I guess, of children going to school and the equally sort of vexed issue of children seeing their grandparents. What would you say about both those? Yeah, look, I think when it started, so the way of stopping influenza spreading is by closing schools because children are big spreaders. Mm. I've said already that I don't think children are big spreaders of this disease. So the corollary is both the things that you've said. Closing schools makes no sense. The chief medical officer has been advising all along not to close schools. The states have been closing schools, partly because Daniel Andrews is a teacher and the teachers are scared and the parents are scared. Now, is that because of people in the media saying we should be closing schools? I think the evidence says we shouldn't be closing schools. I think we should be reopening them. And I think it's bad for our kids not to go back to school, bad mm. for their parents not to have them back at school. So I've thought all along we shouldn't have shut the schools and mm. I think we should be reopening. Grandparents, I'm a grandfather and my son and his wife have been keeping them, my grandson away for a while, but gradually we're all realizing the risk is not from him, it's more from them to me rather than from the child to me. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that I can't avoid hugging him. If he comes rushing to me and wants to be picked up for something, I'm going to have to hug him. And they know that I can't social distance from him, whereas I can from them. Mm. They both work in childcare, and they're concerned that there'll be a little outbreak. One of them will be infecting us. So we're all being a bit careful about being grandparents and not getting infected because we know that the elderly are at greater risk. And so that's why the social distancing, physical distancing, and it's really difficult. You know, as a grandparent who loves his grandchildren, I find it very difficult not to hug them. And their way of coping with that is to keep the grandchildren away from us. So they're protecting me and my wife. <laughs> Do you feel optimistic about how we get out of this? Uh, you know, it's interesting. There are pessimists and optimists in the world, aren't there? And I've always been an optimist. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take this disease incredibly seriously. We should. But I'm optimistic that we will come through it. And not everyone will, but that most of us will come through it and we'll learn lessons from it and we'll be better prepared next time. There are pessimists who love everything's always Armageddon. And then if it's not, then at least they've been, you know, it's not as bad as they thought it might be. But I'm not one of those. I'm one of life's optimists. I think we'll be okay. Professor David Isaacs, it's been really fantastic to hear your perspective and your observations and get your expertise. Thank you for dragging yourself away from children in the Children's Hospital at Westmead. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.